All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Questlove Supreme. Uh, Today marks the conclusion of what I feel is an instant classic episode as i expressed in the previous recording that i personally like one-on-one qls's uh meaning one artist to the show as opposed to group scenarios so that way you know it's always you get two sides of a story of the same story sometimes or you get uh the same identical story but previous episode we talked to um one half one of my favorite duos in music one of the most successful duos and music and now we are given the the honor and the pleasure of speaking to the voice the soundtrack i mean the personal soundtrack of my childhood and i'm you know a philadelphian so this this episode is is doing me some pride right now what else can i say but the one and only daryl hall hey hey what's love supreme welcome sir all right (laughs) uh by the way team supreme i'm sorry i didn't even acknowledge your presence how are okay. well, damn you was waiting for that <laughs> i was gonna say it's okay it's daryl hall we're all a little fanned out it's fine no no no. but in my mind i'm still feeling like this is a continuation of the episode but yes we can let the world know that maybe a week or two went by and uh you know yes yes so how are you doing are you i'm i'm doing great i i'm i'm i'm, I'm ready i'm so good You're i feel excited. like this is yeah life is complete man it really wait, is can i wait i gotta ask something personal even though this is inconsequential to our viewers who could only hear us and not see us, but I feel like every time you do an episode, you're doing it from another part of your house or I see a new. <laughs> I said, this is actually my studio house. Yeah, nice. that's, oh yeah. This is mine too. Hey. Okay. Exactly. That's okay. what I, it is. Amir. It's my studio house. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I'm just, I'm impressed with every episode. You seem to be in a new part of your house that I've never seen before. And I'm it's, really uh, it's the That's only way I can get my Quest Love Supreme brothers to truly come to my house. So yeah, this yeah. is the way I'm doing it. Maybe one day y'all come mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of us will have to agree to get on a plane, but we'll that will say that for another episode. Okay, you was here uh, last week. Okay, Bill. Yes, sir. How's it going, sir? Fantastic. Congratulations How you? to you. How are uh, you? 
I'm all, I'm I'm yeah. great, man. Bafta. Congratulations Bafta. to you. You, you, you you've been winning awards like hand over whatever that expression is, and uh, we have to do some flowers, Amir. Flowers for Amir. Congratulations. I, I take with the flowers. Yes, thank you. Thank you we for are, that deflection. I'm totally proud of you. Thank well you. Done. Well, you know, also you you fin you finished a, a a milestone in your the the show that you're working on Sesame Street. You 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 finally finished a, I guess season fifty. I assume we we finished just last week season fifty three. I think fifty three. Season fifty three. Um, also, wait, this is what I do want to know. Wow. Um, because I'm not an active watcher of Sesame Street now that I'm fifty one years old, Ooh. as as I was when I was a kid. But the death of a uh, Mr. Uh, Delgado, uh, mm-hmm. aka Luis, on Sesame Street. He was he still an active character on the show, even up, or did he leave beforehand? He le- he left, but came back a little while ago. He was back and forth, but he was like a definite presence. Uh, all of the humans, sort of humans, the humans, all of the the actors on that show, sort of are always sort of omnipresent in that place. Bob and Emilio so like and- Maria, Bob and Maria. Susan and Gordon, like they're still occasionally come back on the show to do stuff yeah like most recently they were around for season we had a big reunion for season 50 a couple of years ago and they were definitely there for that and i saw him at that and he's a fantastic like emilio like played the guitar really well and sang really well and like yeah. he was just a consummate musician and a wonderful human being it's really sad but yeah you know, when you put when you put me on the float i think uh i got to meet some of them and that was really cool you make it seem like i physically placed you upon the thanksgiving day float and i I will take full credit for that. Well, I, you, I'm, know. you know, I'm trying to give you props, Bill, because I I don't want people to think that you're just like the flavor of flavor sidekick. Like mm-hmm. you, you're you're a major staple in the circle, man. You are, Thanks. you know, you're writing brought hit Broadway shows and producing oh, I, platinum albums. And just for the record, know. I'd be happy to be a flavor flavor sidekick. I'm totally fine with that. too. But that's very nice. <laughs> no, that's right. I'm, I'm, so the, I'm throwing like, some of right. these flowers back to you. Sugar Steve. Right, flowers. You okay? Even though you're up, upgrading your computer right now, you're doing this on your telephone. I'm really good. Thanks for asking. I actually won a Schmucky Award last night, and I'm thinking about buying Makes my own sense. paper airplane. Okay, I lay it, lay it. It's, don't step on my punchlines in front of Daryl Hall. Did you? I'm sorry. Did, I didn't know you heard me. I'm sorry. Anyway, Fontigolo, good. Time. I'm good, brother. I'm good, man. I'm good. Congratulations to you, man. I was happy to see that. Straight Thank up. You. Yes. I appreciate that. Yeah. Now we can finally get to to, all right. all to right. business. First of all, uh, Sir Daryl Hall, are you in the world famous Daryl's house right now? I'm in. The, uh, I'm in my studio house. Okay, explain what, what that is. So that this is different house. than the Daryl's house that I've seen on television. Yeah, it's a different house. An altogether Ooh. different house. <laughs> that is baller shit. I I like this. <laughs> I like where this is going already. If you if you guys could see what we see right now, like maybe besides Will Smith, uh, I've not seen a person be so imaginative with their <laughs> surroundings Zoom set up. Right. Yes. This is this is this is the next room, man. He said, I might have to in the do living room. this. Don't do anything too imaginative. <laughs> One light bulb. I live. One light bulb. So so as I so as I said on on uh, the top of the show, um, we we talked to your your partner for over five, I don't know, maybe six decades. Um, John Oates uh, about his experience, musical experiences in his life. And and now's your turn, because, you know, although you two share common ground, you two also have done different endeavors. And so I kind of wanted to make this more one on one instead of like the 
the uh, the group project. So for you right now, like where where do you where do you call home? Where do you reside? Right, I'm in Connecticut, right here. I, I you know I have a house in London too, so I kind of go back and forth. Nice. What part of London? Uh, in, in Kensington. Nice. Okay, I used to live in Kentishtown. Okay. All right. Yeah, Kentish Town in, in London. What when when did you uh cop a spot in London? When? Yeah, I've been I've been there since the seventies. Oh wow. What? Forever. So you're a dual Man. citizen. Right, sorta. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Why okay. London? What made you choose uh to go over there? I, I just I had an affinity for it just from the very beginning. It it kind of it reminded me of Philadelphia in some crazy way. Oh wow. We a little cleaner oh. than that. Wait a minute. Now. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> some parts, some parts. <laughs> no, 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 but you know, he he has a point because the roots coming from Philly, we had to choose somewhere in Europe to live. And it was definitely something like should we move to Paris? Should we move to Dance? And it was something about London that called us. And it's, so there's something familiar about it, you know? Very much so. So thus, okay. Well, that that's that's cool to hear. Like, they it, have good are ears you in too, a, are you in the city part of London, London, or is it more like a quiet place, or like what? Because I know oftentimes artists will have their city residents, and then they'll have a spot that you know is more quieter. I mean, I understand that now. Like, I I never thought I'd be a person that would get a farm, but. I just got a farm because I actually felt I'm more creative when I'm isolated and then silent. So for you, is having a dual housing situation more about like getting a spot that's quiet and then a part that's immersed in the city or just or just to have a city in, in Europe just in case you just want to. Well, it, it's it's actually kind of the same thing. I, you know, I live out in the country here when I'm in America and then my city house is is, is in London. And I mean, I have a. It's like a, te- it's, you know, a row house, townhouse, same okay. thing. Yeah. So is it important uh, as a creative for you to have a spot that's, that's quiet and more isolated and allows you to be creative or like, again, as, as a newbie person that just purchased his spot. I mean, I did it because the pressure of the pandemic forced me to do it, but you know, otherwise I'd never understood artists that were like, Yo, man, I, I need the country life is important. Like, I mean, I get the importance of silence now, but obviously you got this house that you're in now way before the pandemic. So what okay. was the attraction of like, you know, I'm thinking like rock stars wouldn't want to be so isolated outside of the chaos and the hustle and bustle of what the industry was. So what was your decision to get a country spot? I don't know, man. I, I've I've always sort of had one foot in the country and one foot in the city. I grew up. I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Pottstown, you know, out in Chester County. And uh, I kind of consider that yeah, Philly adjacent. It is. Well, it is. But when I, hey, I'm an old guy. You know, it was was (laughs) the country in those days. It was really (laughs) the country. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a a colonial house and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it was, uh, I I grew up in in that world. You know, my uh, family were farmers, you know, and, uh, uh, so I grew up that way, but I was also part of the city. It's always been t- it's always been kind of schizophrenic with me. It's a, okay. it's a city and a country together, and uh, I, I sort of need both of them. I, I I need one to balance out the other side. Do you, Do you remember what your very first musical memory was? Probably seeing my 
what my mother and father both were musicians. I've seen my mother in a band. I mean, my mother was in a was in a band in in Pottstown, and I was like, yeah, from the age of two years old, I'd watch the band and. I always wanted to be the band leader, you know, the guy that had the, he had like a white coat on. Everybody else had red coats on. He had a white coat on. So yeah, I was, I wanted to be that guy. What does Daryl Hall's mom's voice sound like? What is her singing voice? She was a soprano. She's 98 years old now. And, and wow. Is she still here? Yes, she still is. Here. What's up, man? She still sings. But uh, yeah, she, uh, she's an amazing singer, amazing soprano. And my father was in a gospel group, a vocal group. And so I learned harmonies from, from him and, and his brothers and his friends and all that. So I, you know, I, I grew up in that the whole, that whole world. Were they closer to doo-wop or more Mills Brothers or like harmony? Like what was their? Church harmony, you know, like. Quartet like, harmony. Yeah, gospel harmony. Okay, but when you say quartet, Dante, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm thinking of I'm thinking of below, you know. I, I got mean, you. I don't say. Right. Okay. It was I a see. quartet. What's your sibling situation? How many are you? How many uh, brothers and sisters do you? Have? I have once. I have a sister. One sister. She lives up here in Connecticut too. And uh, is she musically inclined as well. She is, but she's an artist. She does all my visuals. You know, she does everything from my album covers to my T-shirts to everything. Yeah. Really? How long, how long has she been collabing with you? <laughs> well, as long as we've been alive. <laughs> oh. oh, so even in the I days of like. I, she was like, she was the she was the visual artist and I was the singer. You know, we both do both things, but that's how it sort of panned out. Even when we were kids. I, I know that I've seen you as a keyboard player. I believe I've seen you play guitar once or twice but what was your your first weapon of choice growing up as far as the, the the instrument that you piano yeah when i was like five years old i started taking piano lessons but i was a singer before that you know I'm, my mom taught me how to sing because she was sort of a vocal teacher too and she taught me how to sing from age zero you know i mean i was always okay yeah well i know that you have sort of history in philadelphia proper yeah. Um, so can you tell me what, like when you started gravitating towards metropolitan Philadelphia, as opposed to outside of Pottstown, at what yeah. time did you start going to Philadelphia proper? Sort of when I was a teenager, I would go, I would go in cause they used to have trains in those days from Pottstown. So I used to go in and my friends were in there and, and, uh, I, and I moved, uh, right out of high school. I moved to, to Philadelphia. Okay. So you're talking about like the R5 or the R3, like those high speed trains that SEPTA yeah, there was like the the Reading Reading Railroad and all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> even even when we asked uh, John about the the time that you guys put in during those those years in the '60s in Philadelphia, he said that you would have more intricate stories because of your involvement with like Gamble and Huff and like all those groups around. But could you could you basically describe to me what the Philly environment was? I guess, you know, your teen years was was in the 60s. So, you know, if you wanted to see your like of the acts of the day that you saw, like where where would you see them and what acts would you see of the day? I used to go to the uptown. I mean, I I, I, I lived in the uptown, basically, and, and I would see everybody there. And I and I was I got involved right away with uh, uh, with Kenny and Leon. I, I, I actually did a talent show at the uptown. With this, with this group I had, the Temptones, 
and I, and uh, we, <laughs> we won the talent show. So I got a I got a deal, and I went to uh, Virtue Studios and did a and and did a record with the uh, with uh, the Romeos with Kenny Gamble. Ah, with the Romeos. Yeah. What year was this around? It's nineteen sixty-seven. Six sixty-seven. Got gotcha. you. You must have been a crazy extrovert, not very shy. Like you sound like you were crazy confident from the jump because to go into Philly and just dive in and just talk to folks. You know what? I, I have I always had confidence in the music area. I'm not exactly a, I wouldn't call myself an extrovert by any means. Okay. But when you get when you get into music, then, yes, suddenly I, I shine. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I do have confidence. And so was it unusual for you in the late 60s? Because I'm assuming that you're you're kicking it with the brothers in yeah. terms of like, you know, if you're at the, you know, having met like Danny and the juniors and, and the Dovells and those other like Philly doo-wop legends that were kind of around my father's era. Like, you know, I'm not hearing them tell me stories about, yeah, man, we used to always go downtown, whatever, whatever. But for you, was there not a novelty factor, but was it unusual for people to see a white guy be so immersed in soul in the mid to late sixties. It it didn't seem so unusual, believe it or not. It was, it was, it was a different time. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, when you talk about the Dovells, they all went to Overbrook. I mean, they, those guys, they were, they were in, in it big time. Really? I, I'll be honest with you because like a lot of my education just comes from like the revival shows that they were doing in the 70s and 80s, like past the, I don't know if I have a visual of of, of any of the Philly legends in their prime, you know, late 50s, 60s, because obviously I wasn't born then. But. I knew those guys really well. Okay. So yeah, the, I knew Lenny, I, Mike Frieda and Lenny Barry were really close friends of mine. And, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were real, man. I mean, they came from, they came from the real thing. <laughs> uh, well, I, I got to ask uh, an eyewitness. Uh, have you ever seen my dad before? <laughs> this is one of the weirdest questions, questions I've ever asked on this show. <laughs> one of the first records I ever bought was your dad. Boom. Really? Wow. Yeah. See, again, I, I only I only know the dad, I only know my dad from the second phase of his career because there really wasn't documentation of you know of, of his career before then. So I can only go on word of mouth of oh, I used to see your dads all the well, time. Well, shoot, so. Daryl got stories, then I want to know. Well, yeah, I, so, OK, like, can you tell me what a typical lineup was in if you were going to to the uptown in Philadelphia, which for our listeners out there, you know, there are a few there are a few houses for black acts that were, quote unquote, upscale in the Chitlin circuit. If you're in New York, the Apollo is a highlight. If you're in D.C., the Howard, if you're in Chicago, uh, is it the State Theater, I believe? Um, yeah, I th- yeah, I think it's the state. Yeah, and if you're in Philadelphia, you're 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 at the Uptown. Could you explain like what a typical bill would look like? Like, is it ho- hosted by Georgie Woods? Is it, you know, is it an all day thing? Like, do you go there at twelve in the afternoon? You stay till all the shows are over. I used to do that occasionally. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was whoever was uh, popular at the time. It, you know, it would be anybody from like Billy Stewart, the, the Mad Lads, to well Gladys Knight and the Pips and the, 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 the Temps, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, everything in between. I mean, it, it just depended who was, you know, who was touring at the time. You know, my generation. If you go see, okay, 
run DMC. You're expecting an hour show of just that act. But I mean, was there ever an act that I mean, I know that James Brown was his own self-contained unit, but even he had a variety show. But was it just expected for like an act to come out and do 15 to 20 minutes and then that's it and you're out? Yeah, that was usually the way it was. People didn't do long, long shows. It was uh, it was usually some kind of review, you know, uh, and, and, a, and a mixture of people, for sure. Okay. Yeah. I never knew that's what review meant. Thank y'all. I never knew that that it meant it was a time limit when you say review, you're referring to a show. Yeah, like you know, just from the days of like, well, I mean, most people Motown sort of review, site, yeah. yeah, or or even like modern. The modern era of like where Ma Rainey's festivals, right? <laughs> yeah, Ma Rainey's traveling circus, and then that sort of, you know, morphed into vaudeville, which then morphed into the review. Which I mean, at the time, only Motown and James Brown really had a strong enough presence to carry, you know, other people with them. Multiple but, acts, yeah, yeah. Back in the day, it was it was the radio guy, it was the Georgie Wood, you know, the Funk Master Flex of that period that would throw these shows and whatnot. So were you ever in a house band situation? Like usually if we talk to New York guys and they say like, you know, I, I played, I, I was a backing band in the Apollo. Like were you ever in a house band situation having to back these acts up when they came down? I, I didn't do it at the, at the uptown. I did it uh, at a couple other places in the Philadelphia area. I would do like, I, I would play with the stylistics or somebody like that, but I didn't do, I didn't do a lot of background play. No, I was no, no. Okay, so if you're playing with the stylistics, you know, I'm, I'm, today it's it's easier for acts to because of the internet, I can easily Google something, I can easily easily reference something. But in your day, how easy is it to pick up someone's music, or is this just a thing where like you hear it on the radio a few times and you instantly know what the chords are? Like, do you get enough prep time to? I'm just trying to figure out the mind state of a person that is. I mean, we used to do, I, I, I did, I worked at Sigma a lot and, did, you know, I, I did a lot of recording with people and, and just read chord charts. I mean, that was how you did it. Just All right. It. So you're a chord chart reader. Can you name some of the, the, the singles that you played on in those like early? I used to pre- work a lot. I can't even remember. I used to work a lot with Norman Harris. He was one of the guys, the, the, the guitar right. player mm-hmm. and, and, and MFS, MFSB, you know, whatever. And, uh, 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 I, I, man, I can't. You know, I, I so long ago, man. I, I, I did. Like, I remember. Oh, doing, I remember doing a Clyde McFadden <laughs> record. You know, I mean, you know, like that's right. That sticks in my mind. We did a lot of stuff where we would do demos, and and it wouldn't even get anywhere. There was this guy George Tinley. I used to work with him. Uh, I think I played. I think I played on a Delphonics record. Okay, mm, you think so, you played? You know, wow. Was it? Was it? Was it a good living as? I mean, for you, like in that time period, was it was it for you like, is it a good living? Like, OK, I'm, I'm a session musician. Or did you instantly know? Nah, it's it's in front of the microphone. Like, that's where the real that's where I want to be. Yeah, I, it was it was I, I wanted to be in front of the microphone. I liked doing it and it was it was an experience and I learned it. And I would be like, you know, I was never it, it, I was like third string or whatever, you know, uh, but I was, you know, I'm still in school and uh, uh I, you know, I, I, I did a lot of writing too. You know, it was, it was sort of a, uh, a combination of studio work and writing at the same time. I worked, I worked with this guy, John Madera. Uh, uh, we talk about Danny and the juniors. He wrote, mm-hmm. 
he wrote at the hop, you know, and he was, really? yeah, he was in the Schubert building and, and, yeah. uh, he was oh, on the sixth okay. floor, and then Gamble and Huff were like a couple floors down. Tommy Bell was in there, so we, we all knew each other for, and, and hung out together. And uh, so it was a combination of be, being being in the studio and writing at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, at the at the time period where Gamble and Huff sort of, or at least they dropped the anchor as the the alphas in this in this uh, Sound of Philadelphia thing, which always confused me because you know i'm assuming that you know not having the the aid of of liner notes when i'm listening to uh either their work or uh you know or the work of um dexter wanzel or any of the other second string philly international people i'm assuming that you know this is all under the guise of gamble and huff only later to find out that they were just all using the same session musicians and had nothing to do with each other. But sonically, it all sounded like the sound of Philadelphia and Gamble and Huff. Did you ever at one point like try to approach them and say like, hey, I, I produce and I sing or song, right? Like, can I join the fray or was it instantly like I want to establish my own thing and not be under? Yeah, that's what happened, actually. Is it, uh, Kenny actually said to me, would you like to come to, to uh, Philly, Philly International and write and do whatever, you know, record? And and that was just when I was getting ready to leave for New, to go to, to move to New York with John. And I said, well, you know, I was tempted, I got to say. But I, I figured that what we wanted to do, what became the Hall & Oates sound or whatever it was it was it was a philly sound but it wasn't the gamble and huff sound mm -hmm. you know and i wanted to do my own thing just what you said i wanted to to create my own version of of philly music and so i turned that idea down you know john had casually mentioned how you two had met but i gotta hear the details he 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 mentioned that I guess a, a fight had broken out at a show, and that's how mm -hmm. you two met. But could you DAS tell us the story of yeah. how you met? Yeah, I mean, he, we've told that story so many times. I mean, singly and and together. Uh, it, I mean, our listeners have not heard it. I guarantee you. There was a record hop out in, in the Adelphi Ballroom in West Philly, and on Fifty Second Street. Yeah, and that's where it was. And and uh, I, I forget who was on the bill. I, I remember Howard Tate was on the bill, and and. Uh, five stair steps and 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 then they had you know the bottom of the bill was the Temptones and john's band and uh and uh we you know we were waiting to go on we were and and you know those days shit happened and and some kind of fight broke out and they and they closed the whole thing down and it was up uh, it was on a second floor so we had to get an elevator to go downstairs to go to go to the street and that's how I met John. He was in the elevator with me, you know, and I said, hey, what, you go to Temple University, blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, we we started kind of being friends, you know, hanging out. Mm -hmm. What was it? What was your uh, major at Temple? Music. OK. Did they have yeah. a RTF program back then or was that like? Sure. Yeah, John was RTF, I believe. He was a journal. He was a journalism RTF kind of major, but I was a music major. First of all, how many members were the Temptones? I know you guys were. It was it was a influence, but 
It was a revolving. We call it Temptones because of Temple University, not because of Temptations. Oh uh, wow! Okay, yeah. see, okay, I thought it was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was revolving, but it was basically at the same time singing before people. Yeah, it was a quartet. Okay. I get it. So, what was the deciding factor that that told you, like, okay, well, let me try this out? You know, leaving the like it's the Tim Tones only thing It's like casual school stuff, casual Philadelphia stuff. And they weren't serious about it. Or were you more serious than they were? Well, yeah, probably. I, I probably was. But it, it all just came out of street corner music. I mean, it, it, that's how it all started, mm. you know, singing together. And then we decided to call it something. Uh, and it was various people coming in and out. And uh uh, and then we eventually we got we we got a little rhythm section to back us up and and event, and John wound up being one of those people at the very very end, and that's okay. how it sort of continued you know the whole it it it, it kind of morphed into just me and John uh, working together and writing songs. Okay. Like, as as a singer, at least back then, like who who was your north star? Who as far as like who you idolized as a singer and then i guess who were you not emulating but who do you felt like influenced your 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 vocal style i mean i was trying i mean you know i mean smoky loves mm. and then i and i loved all the singers of the temptations I, I was really into all that stuff but i a lot of street corner people you know uh your father man i lo i loved him uh, later you know felipe wind uh, uh, you know oh yeah spinners and wow. and these are the people that I idolize that I I won't yeah I, I guess when I was a kid emulate yes for sure well I mean just in terms of influence that's all I was going to say um, <clears throat> Costello mentioned um, Mr Wind also from the Spinners as his as oh, yeah. like his his all time you know vocal idol there you go yeah no he's mm -hmm. a monster. Daryl, can I just ask what your parents have are thinking on your journey? Like, did they expect you to just be an art? I mean, it's a blessing that you had two parents that were artists, but were they thinking that's where you were going to go and were they happy about it? They always supported me, always supported me. Uh, the, the, there was never any question about it, to tell you the truth. Um, mm -hmm. They wanted to make sure I was going to, like, do something that I would make some money at, right? Hopefully. Right. But it was, all, you know, they, they always supported me. Always, always. That's so dope, man. With John, was the chemistry with you guys on a, mostly on the songwriting tip, or or was it a musical thing or vocal vocal harmony kind of thing? It was sort of songwriting more than anything. I was interested in what he was doing because he was he was way out of my realm of experience. You know, he liked bluegrass music and all the stuff that I'd never heard of. You know, or heard I heard of, but I had never heard and. Uh, I was sort of, you know, in, in, I was in my student mode, so I was learning about all these things. And so I was in, really interested in what he brought to the table that way. So it was, it was more of a friendship than anything else, to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, we decided we were going to share a stage, but be very separate, which we've never changed. You know, he has his own musical style. I got my own one. We somehow fit it together when we, when we worked together. But uh, yeah, it was more, it, it really evolved from a friendship to, to something a little more than that. The original Outcast. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Original Mob Deep. <laughs> yeah. You both write music and you both wrote lyrics. And it was, how did that work? Occasionally we would 
work together. That's how it worked. Like the song "She's Gone," that mm-hmm. that's a. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would call it exception to the rule, if you want the truth. Um, uh, John John writes his own kind of songs, and he, and and I write mine. And uh, uh, occasionally we would collaborate on lyrics, and uh, I would throw things at him. And I also collaborate with other people, like the, the Allen sisters, Sarah Allen and her, and her sister Jenna. Uh, wrote a lot of songs with with me, and and I would jump into that too sometimes. Are you protective of your work to the point where you're not easily persuaded or persuadable when it comes to like, okay, if you mm-hmm. submit a song, is it, you know, this is this is it, or is it, hey, why don't you try this idea? No, 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 no fix that around. I mean. I could see the producer doing that. I mean, in terms of like if Todd's producing or whatever, but like with you and Daryl, like, are you two allowed to offer unsolicited suggestions of a, you know? Absolutely. I, 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 the reason I love collaboration, I like bouncing off ideas back and forth. Uh, John's participation in my songs is more like, what do you think of this? And then he'd say, well, why don't you try that or sing that or do that? And, and, but I would generate the song. And, or, or sometimes uh, one of the, like, uh, Jana Allen would bring a song in and, and I would do that with her. Um, okay. You know, it works like that. Yeah, very flexible. Very flexible. Okay. You mentioned She's Gone, but I don't think we got to hear you when you broke down the workflow of that song. We sat and wrote that. He, uh, John came up with a chorus, mm. and and it was sort of a it, more folky kind of style. And I said, okay, why don't we do it this way? And I started playing that piano riff that is the signature of the song. And right. then and I did all that. And then we sat down and we wrote lyrics about it. I mean, that was a real Hall and Oates song. Uh, we 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 sort of pooled our experiences that were there were things that were going on with both of us separately at the time, and we kind of mixed it together and turned it into the what uh, what the lyrics are of that song, and then we took it to Atlantic when when we uh, played it for a reef. He's the one that put those that crazy modulation idea into it. How does a group pursue a record deal in the seventies? You know, now we're in a time where you can go viral on YouTube. Someone sees it and chances are they'll stalk you and see what your situation is and sign to me. But how do you how do you gain the the attention of the industry? Like when you you, when you and John are like, all right, we're going to do this. What's the what's the step in the process of getting a record deal? We, We you know, we knocked on doors in 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 New York City. And everybody liked us, and then we'd get the word, well, they liked you, but they, you know, they turned us down. Well, so we we went. Long story short, we we actually went to L.A. and uh, we we went out there and we were knocking around. We were introduced to some people, and I was introduced. John and I were introduced to this guy named Earl Mc, Earl McGrath, Earl McGrath, who had a this tiny label. This uh, that was a an indie label subsidiary of Atlantic, and it was called Clean Clean Records. And Earl wanted to sign us. He he liked what what he heard, and he said, "Okay, I'll sign you." And then he he took it back to New York, and we auditioned for Ahmet and uh, and Arif, and 
I remember I had the flu, man. I, they gave me this piano where the, all the notes were sticking on it. And I, I was, it was, it was the worst audition in the world. And whatever happened, Arif really liked it. Amon really liked it. So they basically stole it from Earl, stole us from Earl. And we wound up going to Atlantic and that's how we did it. My dad mentioned, uh, what, what, what we commonly say as a showcase. I don't know if showcases are com as common now as they were back then. But when you're saying we audition, is it a thing where you book a gig at the bottom line or a club and they come see you? Or are you in a confined SIR situation? Or I know like Atlantic has their own facility and room like that. Like, do you set up there and then you just perform for 10 suits in a room? Is it is that process more jarring and weird like to? Yeah, it was it was it was really like I said, I, I it, it, all the all the conditions were the worst. We were in this little room with this shitty mm -hmm. piano. I mean, with with, with the key sticks uh, uh, stuck, and uh, and we had and and, and I, across from me and the other side of the room was Ahmed Arif, and, and uh, I don't think it might have been Jerry Wexler. I can't remember, but wow. they were all sitting there watching us, and it was just me and John, and I'm playing playing like I can't even remember what I played, and. Uh, I thought it went terribly, but I, I guess they saw something, you know, they, they saw through it all. And that's how it was. It was a really personal audition. Can you talk about, um, like, uh, you know, Mr. Martin is one of my idols because one of my favorite groups ever was the average white band. So having read his name on, you know, on average white band and, and Aretha Franklin and Donnie Hathaway, can you talk about working with Arif Martin as far as his production style and what was, was it like for you? He was he was the greatest producer, man. I mean, I, I, in my opinion, Arif and Quincy are the two great producers of all of the, of the era, and wow. uh, he allowed Arif allowed the artist to do. He, he was so flexible. I I, I can't even describe it it was he he allowed you to shine he he had this uncanny ability to figure out what it is that you were good at doing and where 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 the spark was and developing that spark and he could add all kinds of he had no boundaries at all he he would mix genres he he would uh mixed eras, everything all at once together, whatever you whatever the the uh, the, the song needed or he thought it would it would need he would just add it and he he had an incredible like an encyclopedic knowledge of of every kind of music and it was it was a really amazing and he was such a gentle a gentle guy but yet mm. he he knew he knew how to drive the bus and he he was an amazing producer that's he, that's all i could say about it was he uh hands on in terms of soup to nuts um as yeah. far as far as picking the songs, picking the the, mi the mixer, staying there for the mix, yeah. uh, sequencing your album, suggesting singles like when he takes on a project, is he literally watching every iota of it or is it like, OK, guys, I won't be here next week, but that like Jerry's going to sit in for me. I got to work with Aretha for this thing. And or is it like once he's on your project, it's just you and you alone or are you scheduled in between other stuff? No, he, it was he would do it one at a time. 
I, and you mentioned average white band who who are good friends of mine. Uh, he went directly. He went directly from Carly Simon to Hall and Oates to average white band. That was the three the, the three things in a row he did at okay. that, that period of time. And but he would devote whatever it was to each one. He didn't mix and match. Um, and because I was wondering if he if he loses his ears, like if he's working with you on Thursday. And then he has to, you know, start doing pick up the pieces tomorrow. Like, is it possible for him to lose his ears or? Well, bit? I don't think it was because he's he, he had the ability to do that. He would just switch projects. Uh, but he didn't. He, he uh, you mentioned before, he, he didn't have anything to do with picking singles or anything. he would A&R it. He would I'd sit there and play songs for him. And he said, well, this is a good one. Are you OK? Yeah, let's let's work on this. And he would do that. <laughs> Uh, but uh, and, and then to develop the song from beginning to end. Okay. But then, and once the song was done, then that that was that it was over. You know, he didn't. He had nothing to do with like this is a good single. That was for other people, which is the way it should have been, to tell you the truth. So, a song like "She's Gone," which is full of drama. Yeah. And of course, once you get to the the payoff key of that modulation build, you gotta sell that she's gone, like. How how is he is he nurturing as a producer in terms like that or is it like do it again do it again do it again like no he uh, that that particular one that was just what can I say that was just inspiration from me I just did that <laughs> you know, I, I just opened my mouth and that's okay that I can't I even it. that note anymore by the way but uh, <laughs> and he uh, lets you and he lets you suggest just, things and let it happen he he let it happen he went and he put oh that was really good you know he afterward he was saying yeah that was the shit he didn't he didn't even say even think about saying can you do that again he right? just okay you know, it was it was there it was what i know the story she's gone is that you know not many people know that the tavares brothers from boston um actually took that song to the top 10 before you guys did even though your version is and now in our minds the definitive version but were you kind of confused or perplexed that your first hit single was actually a cover song of your song yeah it was a weird thing i it was i was i boy you know it's a long time ago but i our enthusiasm right over overrode our frustration if you know what i mean by that <laughs> but uh, is like, it like seeing your girlfriend with another guy or is it, it just like hey i'm in the top 10 and i wrote this song so here comes the money yeah i mean i just i can't say i was pissed off because i i just felt that was the way of the world at the time mm -hmm. and and i didn't have any expect i didn't have any expectations whatever happened i just i rode the horse with whatever direction it was going in and uh if Tavares has a hit with it, okay. Well, I, I wish it was me, but mm -hmm. it was them. So that's all I can say, you know. What was the decision behind working with, with Todd on the, the War Babies record and not staying with Arif to see if you guys can go further with it? I just I, I I felt that I wanted to do something completely different. I I, I don't know what my mind my mindset was in those days. I moved to New York City. I, I wanted to sort of like expand my musical world outside of the uh, my sort of my, my my Philadelphia, you know that the Philly sound thing, and and I wanted to go completely different. I don't know why I did, but I did, and 
I thought that maybe working with Todd would be a good thing because he did the same thing. He's a Philly guy that left New York and created his own musical world. And I thought that it would it would be interesting to to see what would happen if if uh, we if he would get together with us and what would come out of it. And that that was really what it was all about. And were you an immense fan of his early records and or the albums that he was doing at the time? Yeah, I, I liked what he was doing. I really liked what he was doing at the time with Utopia. It was it was really okay. Well, having having discovered his discography twenty years after the fact, you know, I, I discovered him once. It's already established that this guy is like a crazy genius. But at the time when it's coming out, you know, was it unusual? Because I mean, Todd Todd's whole canon is really it was forward thinking for the time period because he's like one of the examples of what we now call the bedroom musician of course we're used to it now post prince and now anyone practically today is a bedroom musician but that was like really unusual back then and he will push the buttons create creatively on all of his records was he ever trying to pass his zany ideas on to you guys like you know, to really push the edge of, of, of art as far as it can go? Well, I was I was into that headspace, so he didn't have to push me. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I was I was right there with him. I said, how far can we go? That was the whole idea. And how how receptive was Atlanta to this at the time? Not that receptive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hence RCA. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Um, Can you talk about Sarah Smile and and just the inspiration behind it? It's it's one of your most loved songs, you know. Sarah Allen, me and John were sharing an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment in Yorkville. And uh, I had a a keyboard. I just played the song. You know, I I was writing the song. It just came out of real life. I mean, I, I can't say more than that. I just wrote the song about what was going on around me. I mean, was she receptive in these flowers that you're uh, I'm now mocking a unpaid bill? Was he receptive or was it like cringy? Like, ah, oh, man, like now you're going to immortalize me for the rest of like, what was her feeling towards this song? And actually, can you how did you guys meet? We met in Philadelphia. Actually, okay. John met her and, and, and introduced me to her. And and uh, we all we all sort of uh, she she worked for a charter airline, and that's okay. where the Las Vegas turnaround came from, and uh, uh, and we all decided to move to New York at the same time. It was, okay. it was like that. Could she sing? She could sing. She's not okay. a great singer. But she could sing, and she, she she's actually a really good songwriter. Wow. Yeah. In retrospect, since we know since you didn't know it was going to be such a hit song, would you have? change the name if you would have known you'd be singing the song so often oh man, i don't know and, you know after sandy and i split up man she said she couldn't go to the supermarket for about two weeks. yeah i was going to say how awkward is it how awkward is it if like i'll never sing that song again if you guys break up and you know yeah but you know that song that song transcends uh relationships and all that it's a it, you know it, it's it's bigger than that you know and every Sarah in the world thinks it's just about her. So it's great. That's true. That's true. So the, the, the time period between uh, the, uh, I'm about to say the, the silver cover, uh, the Daryl Hall and 
John Oates' uh, self-titled record with yeah. Sarah right. on it. Yeah. Between that and, you know, between, I think, Faces, you know, there was kind of a, a period, or not Faces, Voices, forgive me, yeah. um, in 80, that, that five-year period where, you know, you guys weren't exactly uh, sticking in terms of, of finding an audience that's receptive to you. Just between that period, what was it like between 75 and 80? Um, well, we had Rich Girl, first of all. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, uh, it, it was, a, you know, in music, it was a transitional time. There was this that weird shit going on, you know, rock versus disco and all that. And man, that, that, put, uh, that, put, that put us in a really strange place because, I, you know, I, it, it was a time of categorization and, and, and what's cool and what's not cool and all this stuff. And uh, it, it was a hard, it was a hard, uh, hard to figure out how to, how to maneuver through all that. It was, it was a really strange time. And it seemed like it, uh, in 1980, it, it, it turned around and something else happened. Also, we started producing ourselves. And okay. uh that changed. Uh, I don't know. I think the world changed and we changed. So having uh, spoken with our previous QLS guest, uh, Denise Williams, about her experiences, um, I know that uh, David Foster produced the, uh, the along the Red Ledge record and the, uh, the static record. What what was it about? What was it? One, what was it like working with David Foster? And, you know, I, I'm trying to. It's weird because whenever David Foster enters the picture for any artist, at least between the period of like the late 70s to the mid 80s, it's rather controversial. But, you know, as far as his work with Earth, Wind and Fire, Denise Williams, Chicago, like when whenever there's a documentary, it's always like and then David Foster came in. It's like dun, 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 and he always drastically changes the sound. So, one, why did you guys choose David Foster? And, you know, what was that experience like working with him? Well, actually, Tommy Mottola chose him. So, uh, I, I, okay, well, let me ask you. Well, at the time, I mean, he wasn't the Tommy Mottola I grew up knowing, like the established CBS, you know, the executive. How did you guys discover Tommy Mottola? Uh, I've known Tommy since he was 20, 20 years old. He, uh, wow. He was, working, he was working at Chapel Music. He was our first manager. We were a trio. It was Matola, me and John, and 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 that's. I mean, he was our manager. For, I can't imagine Tommy Matola as a a teenager. He was pretty much the same, just younger. <laughs> and how is he good enough to be your manager as a teen? Like, how did you see that in a teenager? Yeah, what did he show y'all? Yeah, he, he's one of those people who just acts like a manager, even if he's oh, a kid. yeah. <laughs> So gotcha. we, when did he, was he managing guys from the beginning, the very beginning? Yeah, we were his first project or whatever you want to call it. We were a team. It was, it was me, uh, John, me and Tommy. And it was that way all the way up till uh, he discovered Mariah, man. And then he dumped wow. me. <laughs> wow. Soundbite for yes. Okay. Everybody's always talking about the Hall and Oates albums and rightfully so, but you also release solo records and in 77 you worked with robert fripp on sacred songs so can you tell us 
what was the impetus for releasing a solo project at that in that year and and what was the story it took like three years for it to to come out yeah yeah well one of the reasons we're talking right now is because i have a whole project that i'm, I'm releasing all my solo records uh you know i've done all you know, i have a whole like parallel universe of music that i've I've been doing since the seventies. Um, but, uh, to talk about Robert, uh, Robert and I became friends and we just decided we were going to try and see what would happen if we put, if we worked together and, and we did that album, uh, in 70, what was it? 78, 77, uh, immediately ran up against the machine that was, uh, try, uh, was, uh, uh, unreceptive to the idea that I was not doing, um, Rich Girl Jr., you know, and, and was doing something different, and and they they didn't want to hear about it, and that's that's been sort of a a recurring theme with when, whenever I do my projects, it always sort of takes the uh, the back seat to uh, the cash cow, and uh, very frustrating. And uh, uh, have but, you ever wanted to keep a song for yourself, or is it? Are you basically just saying that? Well, I write for projects. I write for projects. Okay difference to me it depends on who i'm working with um um so i i, I don't think i ever said i'm going to hold this song for a solo record or hold this song for a hall and oats record or anything like that just yeah i work for projects you know one of the very first sounds of a drum machine that i've ever heard was i mean at the time that i was aware of it was i can't go for that um as far as like technology is concerned and all those things like for you can you just explain how, you know, how intricate or how involved you were with like finding new sounds and whatnot? I don't know if it's like you purposely wanted to find a new sound, but, you know, I can't go for that. It was such a radical sound that what was uh, kind of the the standard for what was sonically the standard for for music. Can you just explain that process? I mean, it's so stripped down, but so timeless at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing. It 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 happened by accident. I, it, there was no plan. I I sat down and I turned on a, a, a Roland Compu rhythm, which is the simplest drum machine that you could ever imagine. And it was and, and I pushed rock and roll one, which is that beat. The, the, and I started playing. I, I had a, a this. Korg organ and I started playing the bass line to it and then I started playing the right hand to it and that's where the song came from I mean it all just happened spontaneously and there was no no plan to I, I was just using what was in front of me it was really like that you mentioned Quincy Jones earlier having worked with both of them um can you is are there any stories or experiences from that how surreal was that night doing USA for Africa. Well, um, I, I know that you were part of the We Are the World recording. It was it was one of the weirdest things that I've ever done in my life. <laughs> Talk about it. Talk about it. Yeah, yeah let's go. go ahead. Well, first, first of all, I mean, I'm the whole idea is that you, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to bring anybody in with you into the room. So that's that's a big change for most people. You know, because everybody's got their people that they walk around with and they hang with and they, they they depend on and do whatever. And no one was allowed in the room except for the actual artists that were performing and, and working. So we were all in there together. And 
didn't know everybody. I mean, it was it was an outrageous assemblage of people. I mean, it was like Ray Charles sitting at the piano, and and Diana was there, and Tina Turner, and I mean, da 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 da, on and on and on, and it was nobody knew how to act because it was awkward. It was awkward. So everybody mm -hmm. reverted to being like an eighth grade chorus. Because we're all, we're all standing on, on those, you know, the, uh, up the, on bleachers. the and that's how people started acting. They start acting like kids and everybody's like making these weird kind of like kid jokes and stuff and asking each other for their autographs and all this kind of thing. And really being really open. I, I've never seen a group of artists be so open with each other. As as they as they as we all were that night, and it went on too. It went on well into the night. You know, it, some some people were still there like four o'clock in the morning, and uh, it was it was crazy. It was really it was a crazy experience. In in cutting those vocals, is it intimidating? Like doing it in front of other artists, or are you the kind of guy that needs to be isolated in a room alone to to give your best performance? Like, what's your Modus operandi. What do you prefer? Well, actually, I like doing it in front of people. It, it, it works. It works for me. I mean, so that pressure is good for you. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. It makes me do my best work. I just opened my mouth and said that little bit that I did. I just sang it. That was it. You know, one take. But uh, some people had to redo their stuff. They heard. Everybody was different. You know. I get it. Um, I, I would also like to ask you about the the Apollo record with Eddie and, and, uh, and, uh, David, um, well, okay. You told me that Tim tones were more based on temple. I always swears from the temptations, but could you describe your fandom for the temptations? Like, and how was that a special moment or was it just like, okay, that was cool. And no, 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 it was, it was, it was one of these special moments. I mean, you're, you're hitting on all the things that actually matter. Yeah, yeah, with the with the Temptations were Temple University, but I, I idolized the Temptations, and I and I got to know them back in those days. Uh, wow. There's a picture of me with, the, with those guys back then in 1967, and I, I really did get to know know them all, and and hung out with them, sang with them, did all that kind of stuff. Uh, I was especially friends with uh, with uh, with Paul Williams and, and Eddie. And, you knew Paul Williams? Wow. Yeah. Oh God, please, could you? I've okay. I've never heard a Paul Williams story in my life. Can you just describe? One time, I took him to Linton's Diner out in West Philadelphia at Overbrook Park, <laughs> and <laughs> and I was the I, I I was the celebrity of the evening, man, because I brought him into this fucking diner. Oh yeah, everybody was like, "Yo, <laughs> you brought Paul Williams," because you know everybody was a Temptations fan, and, and I brought him into the place, man. And yeah, I, I I really like Paul. I, I had a lot of heart to heart talks with Paul, man. And he used to listen to the records and listen to my songs and stuff. I was just about to ask you, what did some of the guys think of your voice and what you did? Like, what did the, the Temptations say about that? I actually sometimes after hours, I'd go in one of their rooms or whatever, and they'd all sit around and sing. And wow, David was never there. David was never there. He was always somewhere. <laughs> yes. Well, I'd take David's parts. You know, I'd, I'd sing the <laughs> Really? And they would say, what? I just want to, I, I just, I, I, I feel like I want to know about the, like the first time they heard your voice. And there's like, what? Well, 
I guess they saw what it or heard what they heard, you know, I mean, mm. I, that's all I can say. Yeah. yeah. The fact they let you come in the room, that says it all. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> That's I, true too. One of, the, one of the double beds, you know, and sing, sing songs. <laughs> Shit. Damn. Wow. That's okay. So, I, I mean, for me, that's like to make an album with my idol, you know, that's, that that is special. I'm glad that was a good experience for you. Um, any memories of the 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 three hearts uh, and a happy ending machine record? I know that by that point, even though you two will have made like one or your your final at least of that Hall of Notes run, the one for Arista, in making that record and working with 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 David uh, Stewart and and um, oh my God, I didn't even mention uh, T Bone your bass player and and your musicians what what was that uh for you what was that process like well dave and i again we i i tend to work with people that i get friendly with first okay dave, dave and i got friendly and we started writing songs together right away i mean we're still really close friends and uh it was it was very natural you know he had his own studio in london and actually we started it in paris because he just wanted to do something different. And we wound up uh, doing a good part of that album in Paris. But uh, T-Bone was sort of the, in the middle of it all. He was the voice of reason because David, Dave is very, uh, he and I are very similar, you know, we just go for it, you know, and it's all over mm -hmm. the place. And, and, and we, it's, it's very loose and spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And T-Bone was sort of holding down the fort and uh, he was the, you know, the, voice of reason within it all and so that's what it was like it was it was it was a lot of fun making that record how did you guys induct him you know even before like we got to know musicians or whatnot you guys had like a really charismatic band so you know i knew of of, of t-bone i knew of uh your guitarist uh um ge it was G. Oh, yeah, G. Yeah, Smith. Yeah, G. Yeah. Smith. Those, those yeah. cats. Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Like, how did how did you guys assemble that particular band? Were they just like New York's finest, and do you knew already? Happened. Let me let me think. Uh, G. was working with Dan Hartman. Okay. And now, don't ask me how that all happened. <laughs> oh, instant replay, Dan Hartman. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that that Dan Hartman, and and then. <laughs> And, and Dan wasn't working, so somehow G. Man, I can't remember. Somehow he got introduced to me, and I said, "Do you want to join the band?" And and I brought him in. And uh, uh, who else was playing? Uh, Jerry Murata. Yeah, Jerry Murata was was playing drums with us. Right. Okay. Then. So it kind of happened gradually, and then and then we were looking for a bass player, and and uh, we. Uh, the guy that we were using couldn't do it anymore. Oh, it was John Siegler. He, he went back to Todd or something like, because he was working with Todd Rundgren. And, uh, and T-Bone auditioned. And, and yeah, there he is, man. I said, well, this guy's a monster. And so I forgot to mention on, on, on John's episode, but um, well, I mentioned that when you guys were coming on the, uh, the Tonight Show, and unfortunately you had to cancel because uh, T-Bone had passed away. Yeah. Uh, two days mm -hmm. before, um, I forgot to also mention, at least for our fans, that um, that's T-Bone. That's the bass player on Curtis Blow's The Breaks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a legendary 
yeah. legendary cat. Yeah, yeah. He, he did that before he before he joined us. That was that was his first thing he did. He did. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh shit! I that I did not know. After the initial implosion of of Hall and Notes, like how how hard was it to come to that decision after the Oyer oh record, and you guys going your separate ways to do your solo endeavors? Like, did you know that at least that initial run of Hall and Notes from seventy two to eighty eight that you had enough at that point, like? It only looks that way when you look back on it. I mean, when we were in it, we just said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We never really stopped making records. Uh, we we made records through the 90s. Uh, well, I know you did it, but it was always billed as like a comeback record or like a reunion album. Which... It was more other people's perceptions than ours. Uh, but okay. we sort of morphed into just this, uh, into a touring band. And that's that's really what we are now. You know, we, we're a performance band. We don't. We don't really. You know, we have this outrageous body of work that we can that we can draw from, and uh, and that's that's really where we come together at this point. And it sort of it just turned into that. And and we decided to be more individuals, which is what I think tends to happen as as you go on in life. You want to become more yourself, and uh, it's part of maturity or whatever, and knowing yourself, and uh, that's what. That's that's where we're at right now, you know. Y'all are still good friends and still like work, but just not recording. Yeah, just touring. We just, I'd, if I'm going to make a record, I'd rather make a record with me. And he feels the same way. He, you know, we, we do it. So nah, I, I get it. I completely get it. Fonte's kind of in that situation himself, <laughs> right? Yeah. I understand. So are you, Amir, in a whole different way? Like, it's, it's like, the it's interesting. I'm thinking about, I'm looking at Fonte and his group situation. I'm looking, thinking about you and Black Thought and existing separately in your projects. It's kind of interesting. But the, but the thing is, is that the roots, like for me, like Tariq and I have, a, have an agreement that we can go and scratch our back. Like we're we're in a polyamorous relationship, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if I need to get my back scratched elsewhere, I know that at the end of the day I'm gonna come home, and, you know, sort of come back to home base eventually. Like check in, hey, you okay? Da -da 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 -da. But you know, I guess for a lot of times there's this thing where it's like, if you're in a group situation, that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then there's always the thing where you miss it in eight years. You're like, all right, all right let's rebuild the house again. You know, I, I just always wonder. And then about you that. start realizing why you left the house to begin with. It's like, nah, I should have stayed gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. Like, can I ask in, in a, and you know, I, I understand this might be a, a personal question, but in, in a situation where you, I'm certain that you can't be partners with someone for, that long of a time without it being arguments or whatever or at least with a duo it's kind of different when it's in a group dynamic but do you two at least have your version of not going to bed angry yeah so or make sure that you're clear yeah. yeah what does conflict resolution look like for you guys we don't really fight it's it's a funny thing i mean hmm. again I, you know we've known each other since we're kids i think we sublimate it i think there's a lot of uh, you know uh, it, it, maybe, maybe, uh, uh, maybe there's resentment and 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 sh shit under the surface that doesn't mm. come out. But we don't. 
it, 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 we don't, we never fight. That's the best way I could put it. We just don't fight. We, we either let it go or, or bury it. <laughs> I see. I, dig it. I, I have a question about your, 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 your Philly home, your, your house on Quint street, the one sure. in Philly that still remains. Um, you know, why, why was that, you know, a, a, a perfect creative enclave for you and John? It was the time. It was, there's was something about that period of time. Hmm. I got that place. I, I was, I was married to this girl at the time. And, uh, right, I was, I was right out of school, right out of school. And it, it was just, it, Philly was, it was really a good time to be in Philadelphia right then. It was great music and just a great, great atmosphere. And, and that house was great. I that was the Hall of Oates birthplace, really. Right. Okay. That, that's all I can say about it. I love that house. I renovated it actually. Yeah. For a whole new generation of fans, a lot of them had their discovery of you uh, via your legendary show live from Daryl's house, uh-huh. which, you know, what was the sort of, what was the genesis of the idea of that, of you inviting uh, guest over to jam and whatnot. And yeah, that was the OG tiny disc. And is it streaming or what? Because it's not it, it, right now. I'm, in, I'm, I'm waiting to, to restart it again. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, doing, um, I'm waiting for my invitation. You ain't got it? Oh, ooh, Daryl. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I actually did give you an invitation. And we were on tour. Oh, yes, you're right. I forgot. Wow. Yes, we were. Mm. I forgot we were on tour. Forgive me. I have my own face. Sorry. My phone started up again in, in some form, for sure. But Daryl's house is is operational all year round, right? Well, that, you mean the club, Daryl's house? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, in appalling New York. Yeah. Right. My my, uh, my sister lives in Westport, and, and uh, yeah, she wants her own table there. She's there every show. Yeah, it's, I, I, I love having a club. I love clubs. But seriously, Daryl, can you see old episodes anywhere? I was really, literally just thinking about that today because it was on an interesting network in the first place. What, can you see the episodes? Can you that? see the old episodes? Yeah, can you see the old Your episodes? archival. Yeah. Uh, so, not all of them. Not My, my plan is to uh, make them all available. Okay, okay, cool. Gotcha. Get that deal. Yes, 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 yes. What were the, the the two years of lockdown and quarantine like for you? Were you able to go into other forays of, of creativity in terms of like? No, I, I went into hibernation. I, I uh, the studio house is where I lived, and and I didn't. I stopped making music. I didn't do anything because I had this feeling that when this whole thing blew over, that it was all going to be different. And I knew it was going to be different for me. Mm-hmm. And I, a lot of reevaluation and uh, just I've been traveling my whole life. You know, I've been on the road my whole life. And to be in one place in lockdown, mm-hmm. I just I just sort of embraced it. That's the best way I can put it. I just said, OK, here I am. I'm not seeing anybody but my sister who lives up the road. And, and, uh, and that's really what I did for all that time. And, and this wow. was the longest that you've ever taken a break from not. Since doing I, music now since i was a teenager yeah for sure and when i realized that it was we were coming out of it i said okay now what am i going to do it's, it's reevaluation. I, I think a lot of people were thinking that way mm-hmm. but it's yes the way, the way i'm looking at my my life my career my creativity everything and 
that's why I'm putting out this body of work album to start it. It's sort of a, it's a new era to me. It, and, I, and whatever I wanted to do, I'm doing now. I'm not holding it back. I'm, I'm not letting circumstances um, dictate anything. I'm just, I'm just, I used this term before, but I'm going to just ride the horse direction it's going in. I, I know that another area of creativity for you is like restoring houses and whatnot. Is that therapeutic for you? Yeah, it's it's therapeutic. It's it's. I love history. I love all that stuff. You can tell by the, this room that I'm in. But uh, I, uh, it's it's sort of like making music. It's it's it, uh, antique architecture is what it's all about with me. Oh, okay. And, and, and restoring old places and 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 bringing them back to their their period, uh, what they were in their period, and. Uh, uh, and, and working with all these artisans and artists, which is like working with musicians and, and getting teams together and making making a project happen, making making something out of nothing. Or uh, it's it's uh, it's not unlike making a record. It's, okay. it's the same thing. Is there a HGTV show I don't know about? Or I did be. do a TV show about uh, restoring an old house. You said you did. Yeah, I did. I thought I it sounded familiar. Okay. Restor restoration overhaul. Okay. That yeah. sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah. Your uh, before after project, could you tell us like the inspiration behind it and the, the creative process to create it? Well, I, I wanted to I wanted to put together my alternative body of work. Everybody knows my work with John with John, but mm -hmm. not as many people know all these things that I've been doing for all these years. And I wanted to bring it out into the world, you know, and and I took excerpts from every album and included uh, excerpts from the Life of Daryl Sass show, and put them all together. I didn't I didn't do them in chronological order. I had you know I I, I did them I tr I treated them the way I would treat any kind of album and just put the songs together as I felt the, as I felt the flow uh, would uh, I just felt the flow and. I, that's that's the best way I could put it. I just uh, showing the world that side of my music and the people that I worked with and all these different projects I've been doing for for many many years. The ultimate mixtape for you, like a, a the ultimate retrospective of your your favorite songs, your personal favorites from your from yeah. your solo catalog. Yeah, you know, all the all the ones that are my first, the ones I think are the great, the the good, the best of the best of the best. You know, and. Uh, and, and and that's an introduction. It's a re, it's a reintroduction to some people, but it's an introduction for a lot of people. And then I'm going to continue on with this and start making original songs. I'm already working on on uh, new songs with various people. Daryl, there's a version. There's a producer named Pomo. He did a version of "I Can't Go for That." Have you heard it? It's it, I think it's on Spotify. He I love like that did shit. like a that shit is hard as fuck. It's Pomo? like a pomo he did like a it's kind of like a house kind of four to the floor version of i can't go for that yes still a groove, spin though. it every time yes yeah that shit is a jam i think you dig it are you familiar with people dipping into your past and sort of re uh reintroducing your music to because they uh i, I have to approve them number one so uh yeah i hear i hear what people are doing and and i i i love it when people mess around with my songs i think it's great Daryl, I always wanted to ask you, what do you think after you you guys uh, did your thing and, of course, changed the way Philly music is looked at? What do you think about after you left and some of the other Philadelphia artists that came after you? Have you noticed any body that that locked in your ear? Or? I don't know 
anybody i'm trying to think of any it's like the you know so many eras it was of course i mean i ain't gonna say the roots because you know so-and-so is here but as in you know the music soul childs the jill scotts the uh i'm legend um john legends well college philly everybody knows yeah i mean they're all great i mean carrying on the tradition man before I go, I, d- I definitely want to ask you about these uh, tour dates. Like for you, do you like touring still or is it, is the grass always greener on the other side? Like for you at this stage in your life, when you see, because you're, you're about to do like a three month or two to three month run for your solo tour. Like for you, is it like, ah, like getting up at like the idea of lobby call and early stuff and sound check and a routine is that, you know, is it still exciting to you or is it just like, uh, I don't know. Well, it's, you know, when you're out there, you go like, Oh, oh fuck. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it becomes hurry up and wait. It's, you know, it, it's, it's routine. It's constant, you know, moving around, doing all that. But when you're on stage, a bird's got to sing, you know, I mean, it's, it just feels like, it's it, it if you're having a good night and your monitors are good and everything's everything's working it's uh it's a spiritual experience that's the best I, I know you're hitting uh carnegie hall is this the first time that you're playing carnegie hall as a solo act first time I'm playing carnegie hall with anybody act yeah oh wow okay. that's what's up man i have one qu- final question from me daryl and um, this is not you've probably heard this before it's not an original question Okay, and, and, it, and it and it's not a joke. Um, we're a lot of us out here still waiting for Rock and Soul Part Two, you know, as promised uh, by the calling the original Part One. So, <laughs> what's wrong with <laughs> what's wrong with um, releasing another edition of that, a Part Two, with just deeper cuts from from your immense catalog with John? I think it's a good idea. Maybe I'll do it. <laughs> there you go. Not a bad idea. I, I have a question in closing, um, and I guess I should have asked it earlier. I mean, when people mention you, of course, uh, you know, the term blue-eyed soul always gets tagged with you. When you think of blue-eyed soul, at least if you're kind of my age, the first thing you think of is Hall of Notes. Did you, did you guys mind this tag at the time, or was it – I think every artist sort of rolls – collectively rolls their eyes of whatever, like, is pegged of them, but – you know, when the term blue eyed soul came up, like I feel like you guys were sort of the first out the gate to get that that title. Like, did you mind it or was it like, yeah, I hate that term? Well, the, the first duo that ever got it was the Righteous Brothers. That's what ah, yes, that, that I did not know. That okay. Sense. Righteous Brothers was that's where the term that, that that's whoever. I don't know what journalists used it, but that's that's where it all came from. Mm. I'm not nuts about it. I don't. I don't. I you know I'm a soul singer. I, I'm. I have blue eyes. Oats got brown eyes. <laughs> Whatever you know. <laughs> I, I I don't. I don't like to. I don't like to break people break categories down, especially those kind of categories. I see. Do you feel the honor in existing, thriving, and <laughs> being an example in soul music in that way, though? I'm. I'm happy to be respected. In in, in 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 a world that I care about, uh, and it's it's my baby food. It's what I it's what I grew up with. It's what it's what I it's it's the the source of my musical inspiration. 
So that that's the yeah. I mean, no matter what the production or the arrangement or even the song is, I'm still a soul singer in my heart. And that's 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 where it generates from. Wow, we're hearing we're hearing that yeah, so is. much these days. Bonnie from Bonnie Raitt said that and uh about about the blues and John said that and Costello said that. Yeah. So it's just you know, if that's what you grow up on, that's what you are. That's right. That's absolutely true. Well, Hey, I, I I just have to say, you know, you guys are, I mean, you in general, like you're, you're the, you're the soundtrack of, you know, my life as just as a music fan and in general, and I'm really uh, pleased and happy that I, we did this episode and mm -hmm. I okay. thank you very much, uh, Daryl, for, for doing this with us and making sure, this man. a special episode well, of Daryl Hall, ladies yeah. and gentlemen legendary philadelphian and uh you know this, yes. wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute T -U. one more question please what? one more question and i swear to god i'll let you go i heard a rumor that you once stopped a robbery from happening once on tour <laughs> yeah is this true yes yeah that's true how i've heard the rumor yeah. of it but never tell the story <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the story this is the encore and i promise it's over <laughs> right right <laughs> Because nobody ever asked about that. We the first time that me and John went to Australia, right? We okay. were we were in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, uh -huh. and it was after a show, and we went to this restaurant, and nobody was there except for it was after hours, and nobody was there except this, these two guys and their wives were sitting at a table next to us, and. My bass player, his girlfriend, John, and our uh, one of our minders. So it was you know, some guy that was with us. And so we're sitting there, and suddenly this guy, we look up, and there's a guy standing with a ski mask and a shotgun. Oh, shotgun. Uh, what year was this? This was 1981, I'll say, something like that. Jesus Christ, yeah. this is private eyes time? Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Okay. So... The guy, he starts waving the gun around, and he and he says, uh, you know, give me your money, give me your money. And uh, uh, I remember the bass player, uh, the bass player, his name was Kenny. He, he pulled out a credit card and, and handed him a credit card. <laughs> 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 okay. and, and so we're all sitting there, and I'm. It, it's it's unreal situation. I mean, anybody you ask anybody in a situation like that, it's all very unreal. The guy had a ski mask and a shotgun. Right. And he goes over to the next table, uh, which was uh, right next to us. And he starts pointing the gun at one of the women and says, give me your, you know, give me your money out of your purse. Right. And he put put the gun down just enough that one of the guys grabbed the barrel of the gun and pulled it. And the other guy jumped on him. And then John jumped up and jumped on the guy. And then we all started jumping on on this guy, and I tried to jump on him, and the bass player's girlfriend grabbed me around the leg and pulled me back. It says, "Save me, save me, save me!" So, so I couldn't do anything because I'm I'm fighting. She's like a little puppy dog or whatever, and I'm trying to fight her away and grab this guy at the same time. We 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 basically broke the shotgun up, took the took the shells out, and then 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 okay, he was disarmed. So then we held him, and by then the 
the, uh, the, the, the maitre d' or whatever it was, the guy that was there, had called the cops. The cops come charging up the stairs because they're on the second, second floor and grabbed the guy and uh, basically threw him down the steps and, uh, and then took him away. And apparently he had robbed 25 restaurants and he was called the Rusty Gun Bandit. Oh, wow. The rusty gun. The rusty Ladies and gentlemen, gun. that sounds like you stopped Samuel Jackson yeah. from robbing Right, McDonald's. I was thinking the same thing, Fonte. I was like, this is pre-Beverly Hills Cop and coming to America. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Daryl Hall, legendary crime stopper, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, man. <laughs> Yo, dog, that's how you end the show. Yeah. Uh, I'm Bill, Laia, Sugar Steve, Fontigolo, and I'm Questlove, the legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame God yes. himself, Daryl Hall. Thank you very much, Thank sir. You. This is Questlove. Thank Supreme. you, very We will see Thank you on the next go-round. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Daryl. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.